do design decisions involve value judgments? Andy Halliwell has gone and posted this question on LinkedIn as part of our redesigning D&T project and debates. I think this is a really tricky one to answer and our expert group felt that it was an important question that needed debating. Do design decisions involve value judgments? I think firstly, I'd be saying, what do you mean by a value judgment, a values judgment? And maybe in your response to Andy's question, you'll explore what you understand and what your views are of what value judgments are and then whether they actually impinge on or affect the design decisions that designers make and also that children make in D&T lessons. So do join the debate. We're always open to conversation and discussion on this. But for now, on to the next episode. Welcome to a special guest host edition of the Talking D&T podcast, usually with Alison Hardy, but today with me, Max Parinal. I'll be bringing you some new voices and perspectives to add to the discussion around D&T education. Let's go. Okay, so hello everybody. Welcome to another instalment of my guest hosting of Alison's Talking D&T podcast. Today I'm continuing my discussions uh, with successful women of D&T by taking an even further step away from that safe world of secondary education into the realms of industry and real world design. I'm joined today by Susie Haynes, who is a practicing product designer and occasional hourly paid lecturer at uh, Nottingham Trent University. Susie, welcome to the podcast. That's my podcast, but Alison's podcast, but welcome anyway. Um, Would you like to start by giving us a quick introduction to yourself, what you do now, and then how you got there? Yeah. Hi, Max. Um, So uh, I'm a toy designer, currently focusing on educational resources, things that sell into schools and nurseries. Uh, Before that, I focused mainly on large outdoor toys, climbing frames, trampolines, and a little bit of indoor role play toys. So lots of wood, a little bit of metal, a little bit of plastic. I've also done some plush products. Um, So I've done some work as freelance, as well as lots of work in-house at different companies. Um, And I do also volunteer as a STEM ambassador um, as part of my current role. Um, so getting there, I did a degree in product design where I did a placement at a company which focused on toys um, and just fell in love with that category. So have continued to stay in toy design from then. Cool. Brilliant. OK, that's re- that's really interesting. Um, so, yeah, a very a very product you're working on now and also the STEM ambassador. Do you want to talk a, just a bit more about that? I didn't know that part about you that you, you did that. Yes, so um, I go into both primary and secondary schools, uh, sometimes doing career talks and sort of how I got to where I am or what sort of things that I do day to day. Um, And also joining in in activities, sort of team building things, um, projects from things like sort of engineering side of things, maybe like marble runs or um, new building design. with you know children from age sort of four all the way up to 16 uh, just sort of engaging them in these sort of steam skills wow that sounds that sounds really good and really excited so that's kind of what you're doing now looking at this variety of products with lots of uh, different materials and things which I think we'll, we'll come back to but in terms of your how you got there in terms of your education what did you do back at secondary school so did you do D&T did you do art A-levels GCSEs what did you 
what did you do? Yeah, so for me, it actually started at primary. Um, I went to a private primary school, which um, meant they had really good workshops with sort of, you know, drills and sanding and all the sort of big machines that we were allowed to use. And it also meant the class sizes were really small. So we got a lot of time with the teacher to learn how to use those. So I was quite interested in D&T from a really young age. Um, definitely went down the DT route rather than the art route. I am rubbish at drawing, um, much more about sort of practical little sketches, um, but did also enjoy sort of textiles and food tech and just things where it was about problem solving and creating. Um, so I did the GCSE in product design, which I did mainly because I wanted a creative subject as well as all the academic subjects. Didn't really know where that would take me. Um, and then moved on and did the A-level, which fortunately for me, but probably not great for sort of the school, there was only four of us in the class. So two teachers, one technician and four students. So a lot of time sort of with people mentoring you. Um, But when I was in A-level, that was when I started to look at university and realised that actually you could do this as a degree and you could actually get a job in it. Before then, I hadn't really worked out what product design meant later in life. Sure, that's that's really interesting, and wow, what a kind of um, privileged opportunity you had—a kind of that's primary school experience, and then having almost one-to-one teaching. That's that's amazing. Um, that sounds really good. Yeah, so it kind of only only came about then. And what was what was it about that stage about kind of product design and things that made you kind of get interested in pursuing or looking into a career? Was there any kind of spark or something that started that off, or just a kind of a general feeling? Um, I think the fact that the the effort that you put in, you get out in an outcome. It's not like a sort of exam based subject where it could just go wrong during the exam. Um, you know, you do the coursework, and if you put the time in, then you know you're going to get a good product out of it. Um, but also, it's just really interesting. There's so many sections to it. There's doing the research, doing the initial designs, the development, the manufacture. So. There's so many parts of the process that are interesting. Sure. Okay, that's good. And then how, how did you find then if you'd had this almost personalised kind of experience in the in the earlier years, how did you find then that transition to university where it's kind of bigger classes and, and less kind of contact? Was that difficult or did you adapt to that quite well? Um, I actually really enjoyed it because I think at university you bounce off all of your colleagues and all of your uh, sort of teammates. So um you know, getting to hear other people's experiences and opinions of your work and stuff was just as valuable as hearing it from the tutor. Cool. Okay, that's good. So was there any kind of, I don't really want like to d- dwell on negatives, but is there anything kind of, any big influential positive or I guess negative um, things that happened that, that kind of really set you on this path? Or the, the, where I guess, where did the toy design interest come from, maybe? What was to drive you into that world? Um... I think for me, it was sort of chance that that was the placement that I did. And I just fell in love with it. I loved watching children use the products that I designed. Um, in terms of sort of really starting to think about product design as a sort of serious career option, I actually think my EPQ was really good for that, which is okay. the extended project qualification at school. Um, it was a voluntary thing that you could do as sort of an additional A-level but you had to do an essay um, and come up with an artefact. And I think that was when I realised that sort of what you do in D&T, which is very sort of one-off pieces that you manufacture, 
you know, it can be turned into this sort of mass manufacturing job where you could have a career in different elements of it. Like I did a lot of research into different designers and, you know, some of them would much more focused on art pieces. Some were doing um, maybe a plastic chair for sort of very functional mass production. Some were very sort of into their CAD, some were sketching, and I sort of worked out what elements of that process I liked and realised that I could take that forward. Right, okay. Well, that's really interesting that that EPQ, yeah, was the was the spark, I guess, to kind of make you connect all these pieces together. That's really, that's really good. So thinking about kind of your experience of education and what your kind of view of education is now I guess especially with your STEM ambassador element of kind of getting it into into education what do you see how do, do you see any changes to kind of compared to where you were there um for the better or for the worse and kind of yeah what's your opinion now I guess yeah I think it is quite similar and I think there's a lot of pressure on being at school but what's nice about the days that I do as a STEM ambassador is that they're one-off days, they're not counting to anything, it's not part of an exam or a grade, which gives the students the opportunity to fail and therefore learn from failing. You know, they can build something in the morning and maybe it doesn't work, but all that's going to happen is that, you know, they're going to have a laugh, they're going to work out why it didn't work. You know, they can build their confidence from that. Whereas I think in a normal classroom situation, everybody's trying so hard to to not fail all the time because they're so scared of what that's going to do and the knock-on effects of that. Mm, that's really interesting. And that's a point that's kind of been echoed with the other the people I spoke to within my small podcast series, that, that this element of kind of being able to fail is really important. And yeah, that challenge, I guess, of how do you how do you get that into a curriculum when you've kind of you're constrained by resources or by the exam boards or the school pressures and things and how how do you get that within there it's it's really interesting and a difficult challenge I really empathize for the all the secondary school and primary school and, and even us higher education people kind of how do we allow that area of failure where you can grow and develop and and realize oh I messed that up but I've learned loads or I, I wasn't the pressure that we see even in final year at higher education um of kind of people they're willing to give a risk and try things in the first second year but when it gets to final year it's like okay this matters now and they switch off from that and what do I need to do to get the grades so it's a really difficult challenge that I think um any kind of any advice of what, how people could kind of help with that I guess is it getting involved in, in things like you do and kind of extracurricular things do you think yeah definitely I think sort of you know if there's lunch clubs after school clubs sort of extra things um, or if you've got a passion for something, just sort of going out and doing it, you know, it might be that you've got a passion for photography, but then you can bring those photos back into, you know, the D&T classroom and your designs and things and use them as inspiration. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's a really, uh, really good idea. Um, yeah, okay. So so kind of focusing as the, as the, um, the focus of my podcast is talking to successful women of design, Speaking as a as a woman, is there any kind of challenges that you think you've kind of faced differently if, if you've been a man? And then out, I guess, kind of in, in the industry, I know the place you worked, because I used to work there, there too, is very kind of um, female-orientated, almost kind of, they have a really good management structure because there's a lot of women in power. Do you, how does that kind of compare to where you've worked before? And what do you kind of, what's that dynamic like? 
Yeah, I've had some sort of very different weightings of sort of male, female sort of throughout my sort of product design career. Um, I mean, starting back at school when I was doing the GCSE in product design, very female heavy, which I think is because we had a resistant materials GCSE and an electronics GCSE. And I think the guys tended to do the resistant materials rather than the product design. By the time we got to A-level, those two options weren't available. And the only thing you could do linked with D&T was product design. So it suddenly became much more male heavy as a subject. Um, And then at university, I was actually in a group. uh, My tutorial group was 16 people and I was the only female. So got very used to being around the guys um, at uni. Um, but to be honest, to me, everybody's you know, just a person, so it doesn't make a huge difference. Um, at my previous company where I did the large outdoor products, it was sort of more male heavy as an environment, but it didn't make a difference. Nobody sort of listened to me less because I was a female. I was the only designer, so if they needed a design opinion, it was going to have to come from me, you know, whatever gender I was. Um, and then where I com- currently am, yeah, there is sort of loads of females, and that is really nice to see. Um, but again, sort of everybody's given sort of equal value to have an opinion. Sure, that's really good, and that's actually really positive to hear that. I guess that you haven't had a, a negative experience. Sometimes, yeah, you know, we focus maybe too much on the on the negatives and things, and but the fact that our industry as a whole seems to be quite kind of like that it doesn't really matter from my personal experience. Uh, maybe some of the heavy engineering places I've worked, maybe not quite the same, but the world is totally changing things. But yeah, it's, that's really positive to hear that it's never really had an impact on you, something you've never really thought about. And also that, yeah, you've been the voice of power. You've been the designer, you know you know what you're talking about. Um, I think is is really good. It's really interesting. Um, okay, that's, that sounds really good for me. So um, is there anything else that you kind of, anything else you wanted to, um, raise kind of using this platform for yourself anything kind of interesting that you've got going on or if not any interesting um, sources of information books podcasts websites or anything that you want to promote to us um, I think for me it's quite sort of specific um, obviously I focus on toy design I'm a toy designer so um, I use websites such as Mojo Nation and Toy World um, it helps me sort of find out the kind of design process that other companies are using. And also it gives you suggestions sort of about sustainability or material choices that you could use specifically in toys. But I'm sure there's loads of sort of other niche sections. If you didn't want to just look at the whole world of design, if you had a particular interest, you could go and find sort of articles and websites that link with those specific sectors. Cool. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting um, angle to take up their kind of mojo nation and, and places like that of kind of almost being specific with that area, but that could maybe spark you off into something else, I guess. And also sometimes toy design is, is from my perspective for the students, seems to be a, a, an easier thing to relate to because they kind of feel like they know what a toy is and know what it needs to do and things. And so there's a good kind of angle within there. Um, but yeah, other than that, thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Susie. Um, it's really interesting to speak to you. I hope people found that um, useful. I'll put some links or I'll get Alison because I don't know how to do it. Put some links within the podcast notes um, on the websites that Susie mentioned. Um, otherwise, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again, Susie. Thanks. And um, speak to you all soon. Thanks. Bye-bye.